Well, I want to start this morning by asking a question. Have you ever gotten punched in the gut? Ever had that experience? Maybe when you were kids and messing around with a neighbor boy? Or maybe just inadvertently got nailed in the stomach and you had the, the wind knocked out of you? We've had that experience, right? I remember once in college playing a school, and I came into the backfield, and I tackled the running back, and just the way that we went down, his body went right into my diaphragm, and it just completely knocked the wind out of me, and I, I just was laying on the ground and finally got up to my knees, and there was just that agonizing, and you can't breathe, and you're, you're kind of starting to panic, because you, you need air, and you can feel it, and your lungs are just burning. Well, getting punched in the gut is not a friendly experience. Getting, getting the wind knocked out of you is not pleasant. Nobody, nobody enjoys that. It feels horrible. But as you're fighting for breath and you're just sitting there and just there's absolutely no oxygen in your lungs and it's just burning and you just, there's that searing pain in your diaphragm as you're doing everything you can to inhale, that first just half breath you get, how sweet is that air? It's just, Okay, I'm going to make it. <laughs> you know, the panic kind of subsides a little bit. Did a breath ever feel so good? Well, the letter to Galatians, this series that we're starting this morning, this letter is a doctrinal punch in the gut. It's the most practical punch in the gut that God could ever give us. Now, kind of imagine it like this. Naturally, you know what Seth read to us this morning from Ephesians 2? We're breathing, and we're used to breathing, but, but what we breathe in life is toxic air. You can imagine it like that. Prior to understanding the message of Galatians, we just naturally breathe toxic, polluted air, but we don't know any better. And so we inhale it and we breathe. And along comes Paul with the letter of Galatians, and, and somehow he takes this letter and he makes it potent enough that he can take it and jam it into your gut, and he's going to knock the breath out of you. Now all that toxic air you'd previously breathed, you, you can't you you can't get it back. But then Paul's going to come along with that same letter, and he's going to place an oxygen mask on your face. And when you finally get your bearings again, that first breath you breathe, it's going to be the purity of the gospel. First, Paul is going to knock the life out of us. At least he's going to knock out everything that we thought was life-giving. Everything that we instinctively live for and value outside of or in addition to Christ. Well, Paul is going to give all of those things the haymaker of haymakers in this letter. He's going to come and he's going to wail away on those things. But the beauty of it is, as we're fighting for breath after we've had that initial experience, Paul is going to reach down. He's going to give us the clean air of the gospel. That's what Galatians has the potential to do. This letter, this letter is literally world changing. It, it, it saved the theology of the early church 2,000 years ago. It restored the theology of the church 500 years ago. This letter is that powerful. This letter, we get to see Paul, who... Paul is an incredibly passionate guy, right? You can't read Paul's stuff and not think, man, this guy, he, he was on fire. Well, Galatians is Paul at his most passionate. His ministry and his gospel are literally on the line. And so he's going to pull no punches. This is a polemical letter. Paul is arguing hard. He's arguing against people. And he'll use the strongest 
and the most startling language that we find in the entire Bible as he comes against his opponents. At no point in this letter, at no point do we dare divide the truths of the text from the massive implications they carry for our daily lives in Christ. That's what Paul is going to try and show us in this letter. By the grace of God, it's what we want to see here in the Word. Now, if we don't understand the message of this letter by the end of this series, then we do not understand Christ. If we don't embrace the message of this letter, it's only six chapters long, then we have no part of Christ. And if we don't live in light of this letter, then we're living a truncated life in Christ. And if you don't live in light of this letter, even, even if you believe, if you don't live in the goodness of it, it's like you know the goodness of Jesus, but you want to go back to the toxic air you knew before Galatians punched you in the gut. Galatians is all about false gospels and functional saviors. Which is just to say, Galatians should make us squirm. We should leave, at the end of this series, every one of us with a big old gospel bruise right on the stomach, where Galatians just nailed us. Because Paul, if we have eyes to see it, is going to show us our false gospels. He's going to show us our functional saviors, because everyone in this room has them. Some of you, it's all that you live for. And others, even though we've professed faith in Christ, are still tempted to seek joy in a different functional savior. But here's the good news. If this letter, if this series has the potential to make us squirm, it also, just like that oxygen mask, has the potential to make us soar. If we kill these functional saviors, it means we'll be ripping the yoke of legalism off of our backs and we'll be replacing it with liberty in Christ. It means we'll be blowing up the condemnation and guilt that some of us battle every single day. And we'll be ripping away that condemnation and replacing it with the sweet assurance of the Holy Spirit that only the gospel can provide. Now this morning, we're going to look at the introduction to this letter. And, and sometimes when you look at a series on Galatians, the pastors will, will include this in a, in a longer text. And really, a lot of what they're doing is they're just trying to kind of skim through it because they want to work their way on to what becomes the meat. In verse 6, Paul is going to come to things and he's just going to start laying at them. And that really seems like it's where things take off. And so some people, when they preach this letter, they don't even really touch on the first five verses. But that's a mistake. We're going to see this morning that this greeting, this, this opening salutation that Paul writes to these churches, it is white hot. Paul is being pastorally strategic here. He is laying out a preview that we'll see this morning in five verses for everything he wants to touch on in his argument throughout this entire book. He's going to give us the bird's eye view of everything we'll see in the next six chapters. In the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul is going to defend and fight for his apostleship and for his authority. And we'll see that in the greeting. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul is going to begin defending his gospel. He's going to begin defending his message of what it means to be a Christian. And we'll see a preview of that message this morning. And then in chapters 5 and 6, it might be a little artificial to say this, Paul begins to move into very clear application. There's obviously application 
always tied to good theology, but it becomes very explicit application in the last two chapters. Well, here this morning, let's look at this introduction. Let's read it together and consider what Paul is about to share with us, what we're about to learn from him and from God over the course of the next few months. In Galatians 1, starting at chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's where Paul begins this letter. It's, it's how he starts out. And like I was saying earlier, he, he's strategic here. And if you couldn't tell, there, there's an edge to what he's writing. And what he's trying to get across is that divine deliverance comes through the message of Paul's gospel. Already here in the opening five verses, we can see that in this passage, as we look at it, Paul is making clear, divine deliverance, divine rescue, comes through the message of Paul's gospel. We're going to see that as we walk through the text this morning. Before Paul can defend his gospel, he's got to convince the Galatians, he's got to convince these, these churches in southern Galatia, places like Lystra and Derby. he's got to convince them of his apostolic authority. Now, that maybe kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? This is Paul, people. This is the man. I mean, this, this guy is all over the New Testament. H- how can you be questioning Paul? Well, they are. And so before he can even start to walk them through arguments, he's got to lay a foundation and reestablish for them, you know, I want you to hear my theology, Galatia. I want you to hear my theology, Providence. But I realize my arguments are irrelevant if you don't respect my authority. So that's where Paul begins. Our first point this morning is Paul's message is from God. That's how Paul begins this letter, reestablishing my message is from God, which is to say my message is God's message. And he starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Now, if we didn't know any better, if we'd never read any other letters in the New Testament, that might seem kind of benign. Okay, Paul, an apostle, is that just like saying... Dr. Paul, is he just affixing a title to his name? Well, it's not unusual for Paul to do that. But what is unusual is that there's a tension and there's a terseness to the way that Paul is talking here. The way this letter starts, actually in the Greek, it's only three words at the beginning. And it says, Paul, apostle, not. So just so friendly and flowery, right? Like getting a Christmas card. Matthew, pastor, you. Oh, I, I love that my pastor sent me such a friendly Christmas card. No, Paul doesn't do that. There, there's a tension here because he's on edge with what's going on in Galatia. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Yeah, I'll get to addressing you Galatians in a second. But let's just recognize I'm an apostle. And this is not man's apostleship. See, in Galatians, we're going to see it's clear. Paul is under attack. And so he starts out in the opening words of this letter, establishing his bona fides. He's going to establish his credentials. 
And it's not enough just for him to say, hey, I'm an apostle. Normally, a lot of letters he'll say, Paul, an apostle, maybe a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, in this letter, he has to state he's an apostle, and he's got to defend it. And so now he's going out of his way to prove, yeah, I'm an apostle, and I'm legit. This isn't just some apply online on the internet, and look, I got my certificate of apostleship. I did this little course that took me two hours, and some random ministry group apostolized me. No, Paul is going to argue. My apostleship is way more legit than that. Now, part of the backstory to Galatians is that Paul and his gospel are facing competition, and they are facing challenges. His opponents here in Galatia, in these churches, in this region, part of it would be kind of southern modern-day Turkey, are calling Paul a false apostle. Now, the whole premise for this letter is that Paul is writing to combat some really terrible theology and some really false doctrine. People were believing and espousing and falling under the sway, which is just say they're kind of falling in love with things that were really stupid, but seductive. Well, Paul writes this letter with the express goal of saying, Galatians, you are wrong. You are dead wrong. You're not kind of wrong. You are totally, unequivocally, you'll go to hell if you keep believing this garbage wrong. And the thing about Galatians that can make us squirm is that if we read it rightly, it'll bring home some of these things to us as well. It needs to bring that kind of conviction to us. So the criticism of Paul is echoed in his defense. His opponents are sowing seeds of doubt in these churches. These are churches that Paul started. These are churches that he, he gave his life to. He ends up in southern Galatia for longer than he expects. There's an illness that comes to him that we'll see alluded to later in the letter. And so he stays there. And he's ministering with these people. And he, he knows. They've heard the message. They, they know the truth. He has a heart for these people. He's given his life and his ministry to these churches. And now these opponents are, are sowing seeds of doubt. You can just hear him. Who is this Paul? Paul wasn't a disciple of Jesus. Paul never walked with Jesus. Where did this guy even get his theology from? How do you know what he taught you at first is accurate? Well, Paul counters that his apostolic ministry, his apostleship, and by extension, his gospel, are not from men. His apostleship is not through men. Paul doesn't hold this office because of some human nominating committee. I nominate Paul. Do we have a second for that motion? I second. Okay, all in favor. That's not what happened. And Paul is showing them that. And it wasn't by human appointment. When Paul's ministry and message is challenged, he's not going to turn, he says, to human help. And we'll see this more even in the next few weeks as he begins to detail this in the first two chapters of the letter. But we might have expected him to turn to human help, right? Hey, Galatians, I'm like, I'm like the other disciples. I believe similar to, similarly to them. I'm an apostle like Peter. P Peter agrees with me. He'll say some of that stuff later, but not right away. Because he knows if he does this, he's implying that his ministry and his message are derived from their ministry and their message. And as we'll see later in the letter, they're starting to get seduced by some of this bad theology. Other apostles. Now, 
if James and Peter can fall into the sway of some of the false doctrine that's going on in Galatia, you think maybe some of us can? Let's not read this letter in a haughty, prideful way. Let's read it humbly, searching our hearts. So Paul does the opposite. Being an apostle is really, you probably know this, just to have a title that means you're sent. That's what the Greek word means. It's just saying you're, you're a sent one. It means that you are an emissary with a message. You're carrying the message of someone who's entrusted you with words you're supposed to speak on their behalf. It means there's someone who's the author of your message, and there's someone who's appointed you to be the carrier of that message. And Paul's opponents are claiming, you know what, at best, this guy is carrying a borrowed message. And at worst, I don't even know if he's got the message right. In response, Paul argues, my ministry, my message, my apostleship, it's not even of human origin. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's not owing to some appointment by the church. It's not derived from Jesus. It's derived from Jesus Christ. It's derived from the Father. Peter and the, and the disciples, you know, they walk with Jesus. And they, they've received their appointment and their ministry, their commission from Jesus during his earthly ministry. The early church recognized this and said, this is really kind of a, a stamp of what it means to be an apostle. One who, who's officially carrying forth the message of Christ. You've, you've rubbed shoulders with him. You've known him. You've seen him. And Paul says, don't be deceived. The same is true of me. He's alluding to Damascus. He's alluding to that Damascus Road experience when the blinding light shines from heaven and acts and it knocks him on his tail. And he hears that voice from heaven. Saul, his old name. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in the story, Saul cries out, Who, who are you, Lord? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And in one of the accounts in Acts, Paul goes on to detail that at that moment, Jesus specifically commissioned him and appointed him and entrusted him with the gospel message. You know what my message is, Galatia? You know what the message of this book is, Providence? It's not just some human philosophy. It's not just a classic in literature that stood the test of 2,000 years. This is God. Paul's ministry, which is the message itself, is from God. But Paul isn't done yet. It's not just that Jesus had called Paul, lest the opponents start accusing him of being isolated in his claims. He points out right here at the beginning of the letter, you know what? Jesus appointed me. God gave me this message. And I'm also writing to you with all the people with me. Remember he says that? He says, Paul, an apostle, not from, man, from men or through men goes on to say it's from Jesus Christ and all the brothers who are with me. Hey, don't mess with me. Don't mess with my gospel. All the brothers behind me, they're with me too. Jesus gave me this message, but all these brothers who stand with me in my ministry agree with me. This message is authentic. I'm, I'm not isolated. I'm not an innovator here. I'm not alone in my beliefs. Paul's calling all the leaders to his cause. And instead he's implying all the brothers with me agree. 
But you, Galatia, you, churches in southern Turkey, you are isolated. You are abnormal. You are getting the gospel wrong. Paul says, I'm with the brothers. I'm with the universal church. You? You're off on your own limb. Blowing in the wind. Paul's argument is that the apostolic tradition is absolute. Which is just another way of saying the words and the revelation and the commissioning that come from Jesus Christ are absolute. They are foundational. They're more absolute than any other source of authority in this world. They're more absolute than your personal perspective. Well, this kind of message jives with me more than Paul's did, so I kind of like this message better. No, Paul says, my message is from God. My authority is God's own authority. Jesus Christ, through God, who raised him from the dead. The power of the resurrection, the power that took Jesus from dead to breathing again, that raised him out of the grave, that's the same power that undergirds my authority when I speak. You can't question my authority. This isn't a matter of personal perspective. This isn't a matter of counting the number of people in your corner. This is God's word, and it's more absolute than any tradition that's out there. You might have people in Galatia arguing from the Old Testament. For hundreds, thousands of years, we believe these things about God. Things like circumcision and law and Torah keeping. Who's Paul to say we can do away from those? You know who I am, Paul says? I'm God's mouthpiece. Now, that says a lot to us, too. It means providence, its pastors, and its people have to be subject to the words of this letter just as we would be subject if Jesus was standing here today. Now think about that. We push back against a piece of scripture and ah, it kind of makes me uncomfortable. I don't know if I really like that. I don't know if I really want it. I don't know. If, you know, that, that whole theological idea just totally runs against everything I've ever thought. I'm just going to push that aside. Or maybe you're more subtle. And you just sort of do philosophical gymnastics around it. And you build up your own way of thinking that just kind of neuters the passage you're uncomfortable with. Paul says, would you do that if Jesus was standing here? If Jesus was instructing you, would you raise your hand and say, well, I mean, what about, I mean, really, Jesus, would would you apply it that way? I mean, I'm not really so, Jesus, no. We read of people like that in the Gospels and we're like, Hello, like on Back to the Future. Hello, McFly. Hello, McFly. That's what we think when we read those people in the Gospels. But we can be tempted in the same way. And Paul is telling us here. He's showing us. When you read this letter to the Galatians, you're hearing Christ himself. There's a group of people out there called Red Letter Christians. And it's this idea that, you know, we're going to be Red Letter Christians. We're going to be people who who love the Bible, but we really love the red letter parts, the parts that Jesus actually said with his own mouth. That's what we're really going to structure and live our Christian lives by. Paul looks at him and says, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
those little nice red letter portions of your Bible which just show you that, oh, this is something that was spoken by the mouth of Jesus. No more inspired than every black letter word that's in your Bible. That's what Paul is saying. Don't be a red letter Christian. Be a whole Bible Christian. In the same way that Jesus physically spoke those words to the disciple, the Holy Spirit is speaking. God is speaking in the words of this letter. So, you want a revelation from Christ? Do you want to hear from God? Right here. Right here in the book on your lap. Right here in this letter we're going to look at for the next several months. You hear people sometimes just, man, I, I wish, I wish I could just hear God speak. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Joseph? Dream those incredible dreams, and then God shows you what the dreams mean. You know what that's like? Read your Bible. Your Bible. More infallible, more without error than any dream out there. As we start the new year, encourage you if you haven't done it already figure out how are you going to hear from Jesus this year how are you going to take his words and read them and sit under them and seek to be changed by them you know where authority lies Paul says my authority comes from the mouth of Jesus so he's saying, my authority is in the text, in the letter, in the syntax, in the grammar, in the words of this book. That's God's own authority. I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago of going to a class at the pastor's college, and Dr. Tom Schreiner was the teacher. And if I had a dollar for every time he said during that week, talking about debates and interpretations in the letter of Galatians, talk about an issue, and then he would just look at us and just say, but the text does not bear that out. Which is just his way of saying, Jesus is not saying that in the words of this passage. You can't hold that theological position because the text, God's mouthpiece to us, isn't saying that. So that's going to be our goal for this series. What is Jesus saying through the mouthpiece of Paul? Because that's the kind of authority it carries. Jesus is in this text. He's there if we'll see him. And so, that's where life is. There's life in this text. If you want Jesus, read your Bibles. So Paul's message comes from God. Next thing, as he helps us to see that divine deliverance comes through the message of Paul's gospel, is that he's going to establish for us that his message, this divine message, conveys grace and peace and glory. His message conveys grace, peace, and glory. He, he says, the end of verse 2, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. My message is divine. You want to know what my message brings? You want to know the kind of heat that my message is packing? Grace to you and peace. The order of those words is not accidental. It's inspired. Paul is reminding the churches of Galatia. He's reminding us this morning. The blessings that Paul's message can bring follows a very particular order. The grace of God brings about the peace of God. The grace of God is brought about and brings through its efficiency peace with God. You you can't have peace with God aside from His grace. The idea of grace for Paul is drawing on this rich Old Testament tapestry of God's steadfast, loyal love. That's what he's, he's bringing to mind for us. And what he's doing here is he's actually praying. He's praying in the words of Scripture. Which, if you think about what we just said, means he's praying as the mouthpiece of Jesus. And this is his prayer on behalf of the churches, on our behalf. I've been established as an apostle. Paul says, I'm a messenger on a mission. I've been commissioned by God. I've been sent with God's own words. And now he prays that his divine message would convey the result for which it was commissioned. Humanly speaking, he prays that his message would bring grace and peace. Now what's interesting is the source of grace and peace. You're thinking, what's interesting about the source? The source, it says the grace and peace come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes sense to me. That sounds pretty biblical. Well, if you search in your New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament does it ever say that grace and peace come from anyone other than God. So Paul is making a point here. When he connects Jesus with the grace and peace he's describing as a part of his message, he's making a statement about Christ's deity. As if it wasn't already enough to say, you know, my message was given to me by Jesus. It has Jesus' authority. Just in case there's any doubt, Jesus is God. He's showing us high Christology in action. So in a matter of verses, Paul has made several staggering statements. He's laid the claim, which he'll spend the first two chapters defending, that he speaks with God's authority. Paul's an apostle because Jesus made him such. There's no human intermediary. Paul's message, his gospel, it's God's message. It's God's gospel. Now he begins to lay out a preview for everything that he's going to say and argue in chapters 3 to 4 of Galatians. Paul is God's messenger. He's speaking with the voice of Christ. And the very message he brings carries grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe think of it this way. Remember, a few years back, I think it's 2008 election, you've got President Obama, then just Senator Barack Obama is running. And in his campaign, one of the key taglines and slogans, you maybe see it on t-shirts or on bumper stickers. What was it? Remember what it was? Hope. There's even somewhere it was like this kind of funky, colorful picture of his face and then it say hope underneath. Well, Barack Obama was campaigning, vote for me, support my message, support my ideas, 
and I can bring you hope. That's what he's saying. That's what his whole idea was. That was what he's trying to get you to invest your life into. Now, the polling numbers seem to say that people are starting to wonder. Maybe, maybe he kind of oversold that. I don't know if he really could establish hope through his political message. And obviously he couldn't. No more than George Bush could, or Reagan could, or Thomas Jefferson could. No political candidate can establish hope. You know, you know wipe away all the lack of hope in the people of America. I'll vote for that guy. Well, then you start to get into trouble when you can't deliver on that message, right? So think about what Paul is saying here. I'm not just promising you financial and economic hope. I'm not just promising you racial harmony. I'm not just promising you jobs. I'm not just promising you peace and I'm going to end the war. Paul says, my message, it brings grace. It brings the steadfast, loyal love of Jesus. It brings peace with God. You buy into my message and you will know God's grace and you will know his peace. Whoa. That's some pretty serious claims, right? Bold words, Paul. Before I go out and buy the t-shirt, before I slap that sticker on my bumper, I don't want to look silly five months from now when you lose the election and i got this sticker on my bumper for the next five years. How do I know this is true? Explain to me why this is so, Paul. Well, here's how. The content of Paul's message, his gospel, conveys the promise. It explains to us how we get this grace and peace. He gives us a preview here of chapters 3 and 4. Paul's divine message is a confident prayer. It's a confident promise for grace and peace because it's anchored in the actions of the one who commissioned the message. I'm speaking with Jesus' words and I'm going to pray for grace and peace. And this is a prayer fully expecting it's going to come to you because the life of Jesus undergirds my commission. And the life and death and resurrection of Jesus substantiates every claim I'm making. Everything we read in the first half of verse 4, if you look at that verse, everything there is tied to Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, Jesus, gave Himself for our sins, who, Jesus, to deliver us from the present evil age. You want to know God's grace? You want to experience God's steadfast loyal love, Paul says, then you need Jesus. That's the only way to get it. Jesus and nothing else. You want to have peace with God, then you need to live at ease in the presence of all God's omnipotence and glory, right? That's what peace means. I get to come into the presence of the most powerful being in the universe. And I don't have to be ill at ease there. And I'd get nervous if I met the governor of Kansas. You're going to talk about being in God's presence? Being at peace? Well, Paul says, you want that? It comes through Jesus. And here's why Jesus is the key, Paul says. Because he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What does Jesus do? He rescues us. He delivers us. Paul is using Exodus language. Jesus is the new Moses. He's leading us in the new Exodus. He's the bondage breaker. But the stakes are way higher. We're not just talking slavery in Egypt anymore. 
We're talking slavery to the present evil age. The sin of our own flesh. Those things Seth read this morning in worship. By nature, objects of wrath. By, by nature, enslaved to the powers and principalities of this world. Paul will talk about people who abandoned him in his ministry saying, you know why they abandoned me? Because they're still in love with this present evil age. They're not in love with the gospel like they should be. But Jesus, through Jesus, he'll free you from it. And how? How does he do it? Because he gave himself for our sins. It's substitution language. Now in Egypt, remember the angel of the Lord comes in the final plague and wipes out all the firstborn of Egypt? How do they protect themselves? Remember the story? They've got to go kill a lamb, a lamb without blemish. They've got to take the blood and they've got to wipe it on their doorposts. Remember that kind of funky scene in the Ten Commandments? Like the green mist. It's kind of like, like supposedly that's the angel of the Lord. Well, they cover themselves, the Passover, by sprinkling the blood of the lamb. Look, there's been a sacrifice that covers me. And so Israel's delivered from the judgment. Paul is nodding to that here. But the stakes are way higher. It wasn't just a little animal without any black spots. It was the Son of God, perfectly freed from sin. And he died in your place. In Galatians, Paul will show us again and again and again. We are delivered by the blood of Jesus. The grace and peace that Jesus brings. The deliverance that He promises is rooted in His cross. It's because His blood was shed. The reason we're rescued from this present evil age. The reason this fallen world can't hold us in its tyranny anymore. The reason sin doesn't have to enslave you anymore is because, as Paul foreshadows here, a substitution took place. Somebody died in your stead. Christ crucified is one of the battle cries of hope in Galatians. Barack Obama says, Hope! And he's got his taglines, his bullet points for his campaign. Hope! And this is why. Paul says, Hope! Grace! Peace! One bullet point. Christ crucified. Hope! Christ crucified. Crucified. Hope. Christ crucified. I can live in hope because Jesus shed his blood for me. Again and again and again and again. This letter will circle around that truth. It will unpack it for us. Grace to you, Galatians. Grace to you, Providence. Because Jesus died for you. Now we'll see in this letter, Paul's opponents. They're going to be whispering. They're going to be lurking in the shadows. You'll see them subtly around the edges, just kind of whispering. Who is this apostle? What is he teaching? He didn't walk and talk with Jesus. Paul's dependent on men for this gospel. But Asia, I think Paul distorted the message. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. You need Jesus. But until you get circumcised, you're just a seeker of Jesus. You're not really part of his people. 
It's Jesus and circumcision. It's Jesus and keeping the law that really matters. No, Paul says. No, the cross of Christ is the contrast to circumcision, as we'll see. It is either circumcision or the cross. It can't be both. It is either Jesus for us at Providence today, or the little things that you think you do to make God pleased with you. You can't have both. If you add those little things to the equation, then you've lost sight of Jesus, and he's of no value to you, Paul will go on to say. Paul's opponents are saying Jesus and circumcision equals grace and peace and deliverance. We have other things that we replace for circumcision. We'll see those in the weeks to come. But Paul looks them and us dead in the eye and he says, it is Jesus and nothing else. Jesus is the beginning of the equation. He's the middle of the equation. He's the end of the equation. If you add anything else to that equation, there is no grace involved in the equation. Now it's works. And good luck, you've got to earn it on your own, baby. And we can't do it. We'll see that. Christ is enough. The cross is sufficient to save. Add anything and you subtract grace. The only thing done in this equation is what's done by Jesus. This is the unadulterated gospel. We add nothing to this. Absolutely nothing. It's utterly grace. It's utterly owing to God. It's utterly owing to the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's 100% God working through Christ. We get to add nothing to the resume of our salvation. Why are they saved? Galatians, Paul's opponents. Well, Jesus, point one, but point one A, they're circumcised and they keep the law and they keep the Sabbath. I'm not too hung up about the Sabbath and circumcision and keeping the law. So yeah, I'm all about Jesus. And one A is... Because I read my Bible every day, so God loves me more. And 1B is, I come to church every Sunday so I can make sure I'm earning favor with Him. And 1C is, you know, I raise my family right and I love all these functional saviors that we add to the gospel. All these ways we want to prove to God, I'm doing enough to be saved, God. Paul says no. It's all because of the will of God. It's all for the glory of God. By stating that it's all according to the will of God, Paul is declaring the cross is the epicenter of God's saving purposes. Every promise he's ever made, every promise you ever hope that God will fulfill is centered in the cross. No cross, no fulfillment of God's promises. No cross, no hope. No cross, no grace, no cost, no peace. No cross, no divine rescue. This divine message from the pen of Paul, this divine message breathed out by the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in the weeks to come, it conveys grace to us. And in the wisdom of God, He's arranged it, that He can deliver us And in the midst of conveying grace to us, he can bring glory to his name. Add anything of yourself, and grace is gone. And God's glory in salvation through Christ gets blurry. Paul's message, his apostleship, 
his gospel are all about God's grace and God's glory. God working through Christ perfectly for our rescue and at the same time, God in his wisdom working through Christ perfectly so that he gets the ultimate maximum amount of glory that he can. Hear this message. Believe Paul's message. Place yourself under its authority. I promise you, not on my own authority, but on the authority of Jesus, it will be grace to you. And it will bring glory to God. Would you bow your heads with me? Well, Lord, I pray again, through your spirit, would you arrest us with the words of this text? Would you bring us joyfully to our knees in the face of Jesus Christ in the words, the inspired words of Galatians? This is your word to us, God. And your word, we know, is effective and sufficient and necessary and powerful. And your word, God, accomplishes all that it seeks to. Lord, we want to put our hope in the message of this book. And we want to put our hope nowhere else, God. But we need your help for that. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray this morning and for the weeks and months to come, for the rest of our lives, grant us the grace to see and to taste and to savor and to love and to apply this message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified of salvation by grace alone through faith as if it was the first time. Help us to live with all our hearts in the good of it. God, would you, would you grant me grace in these messages to know how to explain and how to dissect what our functional saviors are, what our false gospels and false idols are. And through all of that, God, would you help us to see Jesus more clearly than we've ever seen him before? And in doing so, would you ground, ground us with the wonderful peace of assurance that we are your children. And above all, God, for your name's sake, the psalmists say, for your name's sake, do all this, that you would be glorified, that you would be seen as the God who saves. In your name, Jesus.